Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in New York today. It's a beautiful morning. I'm with Jeremy Phillips, who is a, a partner at Spark Capital. Uh, he's an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. I can say this because we were at university together. He's also a fearsome and fantastic debater who once put the fear of God into Ted Cruz. <laughs> That's a long time ago. <laughs> I'm sure he hasn't forgotten, Jeremy. <laughs> I think he has other issues. <laughs> So I thought we'd talk about today because you've got this fascinating and somewhat mysterious column in the New York Times, uh, which every now and again you sort of drop a, a bomb of contrarian thinking. And uh, this week you, you wrote a great piece um, really about competitive advantage and the, I guess the myths of the frightful five. So I thought that would be a good place for us to start. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that it's really all based around the idea that competitive advantage is something that hasn't changed that dramatically over time. The nature of companies has changed a lot, so the nature of how that advantage is manifested has changed. But in the end, there are limited sources of advantage and digital companies are playing with the same tools, really, that Standard Oil played with a century ago. So it's still Michael Porter's five forces. <laughs> well. Yes, except as, as Bruce Greenwald famously says about Michael Porter's five forces, they're great, but there are four forces too many. Because <laughs> really, the only thing that matters is competitive advantage, or another way of saying it is barriers to entry. Right. And everything else really is a subset of that. So really all one needs to understand is what kind of competitive advantage a company's building and how durable are they. The Frightful Five, the, the members of this interest group, uh, it's Apple, um, Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook. Microsoft. Microsoft, which is interesting because that's like a relatively new inclusion because people used to talk about Fang, right? So it feels like we've dropped Netflix and added Microsoft. What, right. what, what sort of changed, I guess, in this, uh, this sort of new configuration? Well, I think Fang was a uh, stock market entity uh, idea. Basically, Fang was the hot stocks, right. uh, the hot internet stocks that are done incredibly well. Uh, Netflix has clearly done incredibly well uh, and it's an amazing company, um, but Microsoft is in a different uh, league in terms of its market power, its market cap, its durability. It's a, it's, you know, a serious behemoth yeah. in the same class. And now I guess it's others. tentacles into the whole cloud infrastructure space. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing is that I think Microsoft in some ways gets underestimated by a certain class of people because millennials, you know, they don't use a Microsoft phone. They probably don't use Microsoft at home. They're using a lot of Google products. And they forget that in the enterprise, Microsoft's probably just about as strong as ever uh, in terms of being on the desktop. And um, it really, that uh, position it has is still very strong. And they've built, as you say, a very strong uh, cloud business and a bunch of other things. So, so people look at these giants because they've collected so much data on us, they're making massive investments in artificial intelligence and machine learning. They seem to reach into almost every aspect of our daily lives. 
So there is, I guess, there's going to be growing pressures for antitrust and people to ask whether they're essentially anti-competitive because they're dominating their markets. Do, do you think that's a fair view? Well, I think, like, I guess the analogy in a way you might think about is fixed broadband versus wireless. So in many parts of the world, including the US, when you're at home, if you want broadband in your home, you really have one choice. It's literally a monopoly. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you've got a choice because you can take DSL or something from the phone company, but basically you probably have one, one broadband choice. In most countries, like the US and in some countries there are many others, you have multiple wireless choices. In, in the US you have several, you really have four plus. In some countries you have more than four. Hmm. And so the fact that both of these things are in our lives every day is not really the determinant of competition. So the point that you just made is that all of these companies are in our lives every day with every facet. So it's true they're incredibly important, but the fact that there are five of them and there's really more than five of them means that it's very hard for one of them to be a monopoly. Yeah. Like many of us you know, use Facebook products uh, every day uh, for messaging or other things, or we use Microsoft products, or we use an Apple phone, all those kind of things, but we have a real choice. And what's happening is these five companies are converging even more, even into products that really are not economically that interesting. I mean, why do they all offer a music service? Does anyone believe that music <laughs> is going to be a huge driver of margin and profit for any of them? Plainly not. But they're doing it because they believe that music is something that people use every day, and so it's an important part of deepening their moat. But the fact that they're all doing it means that as a consumer, we benefit. This is like a nightmare for regulators because how do you define market spaces? I mean, it's not as if you wake up and go, what's the market space for people wasting their time on social media? And who has an unfair advantage in that, right? Absolutely. I think that defining markets is a really uh, critical part. And I think people have got carried away in trying to define very narrow markets. Yeah. And they forget that there's real uh, competition between players. The real market is typically you know, online advertising. It's not the particular way in which you serve a consumer. Right. There are markets we can see where there's a dominant player. I think it's pretty easy to understand that Google is dominant in search yeah. and that that is a market and that that's something that we need to be very cognizant of. It's interesting when you look at the leaders of these companies because they generally don't define markets even the way their competitors do. I mean, the, the classic comment from Reed Hastings around Netflix is that he saw his natural competitor as sleep. Although that did sort of recall to me the, the slightly more frightening things that when Coca-Cola executives used to say that they were talking about, you know, share of mouth and water was a competitor. Yeah, no, their, their main <laughs> opportunity was breakfast. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that these, his comment was, was, was both clever and exceptionally uh, disingenuous. He was trolling um, us a little. He was trolling us for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, Netflix is an amazing company, <clears throat> but the level of competition they have is staggering. You know, Netflix, I believe, is spending you know, in the order of six billion, maybe a little more each year on content. Amazon this year is spending something like, I believe, four billion. Yeah. Uh, and HBO and all those others are spending a fair bit as well. So in the end, that is brutal competition uh, and it's great for consumers. It also feels like a net transfer of wealth from, from public markets to scriptwriters. <laughs> Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, this, this is sort of the golden age of television right it now. It is actually, I think that most of the transfer is to consumers. Uh, you think about what you get 
for $10 a month and it's really amazing. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a huge transfer of wealth to producers. It's true that they are benefiting from this heightened competition, but actually these players have been relatively good at capping costs and playing cost plus for a lot of the production uh, that they're taking. So really it's the consumer who's benefiting from most of this stuff. And actually this is a point I think you make in one of your columns that something that Netflix looks like it on the face of it, it has certain barriers to entry, but, but really anyone with $6 billion to spend can also create the same amount of content. There's no natural network effects that protect it. No, I mean, I think the, the, the thing that people get confused about Netflix is that, I mean, Netflix, to be fair, is an amazing story hmm. and an amazing CEO and incredible execution. And there's very few companies that made the transition from offline to online in the way that this is done. So, Well, from red envelopes to streaming, right? To red envelopes <laughs> to streaming, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. But the thing that people get confused about is you think about the red envelope business, if you like. I, I like that description of it. Um, that was an amazing monopoly. Yeah. Basically, they had Blockbuster, they put Blockbuster out of business, and at that point, what they had was distribution centers all around the country, uh, which required enormous capital investment. And for you or I to start a competitor to Netflix at that point would have been incredibly hard. So it was a domestic business. Its core value proposition was no late fees. It, its core value proposition was initially no late fees, but then essentially they had no real competitor. Yeah. It was Redbox, a few things, but not very much. And creating a competitor would have been incredibly hard. So they had pretty much monopoly with high fixed costs. And it was a great business that was growing in a domestic market. And then essentially broadband came along and they were incredibly smart in the way in which they saw the writing on the wall started the streaming business, massively invested in it, and made the leap, and it's incredible. And the market but, actually punished them for it for a while, do you remember? Well, the market punished them when they tried to do that separation, yeah, yeah. all those kind of things. But you think about their business today, and their stock's worth five times what it was worth before that, and they've done incredibly well. Their market is now not the US, but it's the world. But their competitive position is much less strong, hmm. because they're not a monopoly anywhere. They now face incredible competition from Amazon and HBO and Hulu and everyone else in the US. And in every country you go around the world, there are local competitors. So they've gone from dominating a market to being the best player in a huge market. Hmm. And actually, the competitive position is smaller. Their total addressable market has got much larger. And what's really fascinating, you know, when you look at a business like Netflix or Spotify or any of these new streaming businesses, is they represent a kind of a paradox that we never expected, which is that, you know, despite the fact that the digital revolution unbundled content and you could buy a single track, yep. we're now essentially as consumers buying into rebundled offers. Oh yeah, I think so. So why is why is bundling back with a vengeance? Well, what drives that from a competitive standpoint? Yeah, I think there's several things. I mean, the first thing is that the economics of bundles are very attractive because it turns out that different consumers have different preferences. And so by building a bundle, you can capture essentially different demand preferences um, with a greater um, you know, economic output. While also stopping that consumer spending that money with one of your competitors. Right, so that's the, that's the first thing. The second aspect is that the cost of actually acquiring and serving customers is very high. Right. And so, you know, if you were Netflix and every time you had a show, 
you had to market to millions of people saying there's a new series of House of Cards and you can buy it for $10. Which is Apple's proposition essentially. Which has been Apple's proposition in the past. It's very difficult. Hmm. It's expensive to reach those consumers, particularly today where they've got you know, infinite choices and they can sleep as Reed Hastings would say <laughs> and they can do all these other things. And so the bundle is a much more efficient way of reaching consumers and it's actually you know, if you look at Amazon, which is the extreme example, it's why Amazon is putting more and more things into its bundle, including a bunch of premium video services. It's now, you know, why would you buy HBO and Stars through Amazon? Well, because you're buying all this other stuff. They've got your credit card. Right. It actually might be easier for you to buy HBO through your Amazon subscription than it is to buy it direct from HBO. And so the bundle is a very natural, um, powerful mechanism and it also is very uh, competitively powerful because it's hard for a single player in a particular vertical to compete. How does Walmart compete with Amazon in circumstances where the Amazon bundle offers this wide swathe of things that Walmart clearly can't match? But it's more than just about um, being cost effective. There's sort of a, a, a kind of a, a transaction and media management element to this as well because sure you can buy your movies from Walmart or any other retailer, but when you have it all organized for you in one spot, it, it makes the consumption much easier. Oh yeah, I think that that's totally true and we underestimate the ease of use uh, elements of all these things. It's funny, you know, recently people have been talking to me about how they use their Amazon Echo to listen to music instead of Sonos just because it's right there on the kitchen right. table. And that they often you know, sit there uh, at their counter watching a movie on iPad as opposed to turning on the TV and so on and so on. And it's amazing how just those ease of use steps we sort of have a big difference. We sort of have interaction fatigue, right? Yeah, it's like all these people, like you see, you see millennials sitting at their desk sending an email on their iPhone. And just because, it, which seems crazy in a way, they've got a keyboard right in front of them. Yeah. But the iOS interface is so much quicker and easier than dealing with a desktop interface. Uh, that probably explains as well why so many of these platforms build chat into. I mean, chat was one of those things where you think is a typical classic network effect business, that if all your friends are on one platform, why would you use another? But I see people using you know, messaging and Instagram all the time, which is completely counterintuitive, but if that's where they are, they just can't be bothered logging into another application. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, ease of use, I think, is critical. I think the other thing about network effects is that actually the advent of the iPhone in a way undermined the value of networks in many ways now because if you think about it we do have multiple networks right um, but a big part of our network is stored in our contact base and it's incredibly easy for us now to replicate that on new services and so for many people they have duplicate networks across many devices and so they can have multiple conversations across devices. The network is no longer proprietary to a particular service where it used to be. I think the difference are, is something where you create a network that's not so based on your contact list, which Snapchat might be an example, where they've done a good job of creating a different kind of a network. That, that, we should talk a little bit more about that because you're right, it, in the old days networks were all about you know, restricting other people access to that network, mm -hmm. you know, who who um, who might seek to profit from it. But now it's the it's actually the the extreme um, uh, alternative to that, where they actually actively allow other services to to parasite off 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 their network. 
you know, in order to add people, you know, you, you connect your Facebook account, your Twitter account, you instantly populate your universe. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the toothpaste out of the tube on, on that. And so these networks, these network effects are still obviously powerful. And but, but they're transferable. <laughs> they, 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 they're more transferable and therefore they're more vulnerable. Hmm. And so, you know, we used to look at, you know, Skype, which was one of the first of these big communication networks and think, wow, that would be impossible to break. Or and ICQ. Or ICQ, ICQ, <laughs> you know, you, now we're going back. Um, now we're going, going back We're dating ourselves. Um, <laughs> But those networks are hard to break, um, but ICQ proves that it can be broken. <laughs> but second, I think that we overestimate their power because in the end, ICQ was hard to overcome, um, but people did. But think about how much harder it would have been to wire up the whole of America to compete with the infrastructure that was required pre-internet. Hmm. I mean, that was a whole different level of barrier to entry yeah. than exists in terms of a social graph. Which is also an example of the fixed broadband, right? right. I mean, if you're actually laying fiber, I mean, you, you can't, although they, they tried this in Australia. Yes. <laughs> you, you, overbuilding generally does not lead to good economic uh, outcomes. Yeah, these things, uh, people, get, people overuse <laughs> all of these terms, but literally, you know, laying fiber is almost, you look in the, you know, in the dictionary <clears throat> under natural monopoly and that's where you find it. Uh, there's very little <laughs> economic reason unless you have bad transfer pricing for there to be multiple fiber networks passing the same home. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in the room though when that management consultant put up the slide saying, okay, I've got a great idea. We need to run the same cable to the same households. <laughs> yeah, well, it's sort of, it's sort of uh, you can imagine there would have been two choices. We either introduce a feasible interconnect regime, which will take lawyers a bunch of time, or we spend $60 billion laying fiber across the country. Those are our two choices, and somehow they pick box B. <laughs> there's, there's actually, this is interesting because, you know, people, people throw around this concept of disruption a lot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, when they're being boring, they just talk about the usual suspects like Airbnb and Uber. Yeah. When they're being, I guess, a bit more interesting, they apply it to everything. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but one of the, the views you've written about, which I've always found fascinating, is that there's a difference between true disruption and, and actually just good execution. Yeah. And, and I think you gave the example of um, Dollar Shave Company versus Gillette. Right, right. So, so what, what actually, I mean, how much disruption is actually just, you know, getting a bunch of smart people together and doing something quickly? Yeah, I mean, I think that getting a bunch of smart people together and doing something quickly is really hard to do. Right. And it's something that can create enormous value. I think when we think about startups, almost definitionally a startup doesn't have competitive advantage. How can two people sitting in a garage have competitive advantage? At the beginning, what they can have is rat-like cunning and hunger and skills. And the absence and, of 2,000 other people you know, to get in their way. And the absence of bureaucracy and all these ingrained biases and all those kind of things. And really, if they execute really well, the best businesses find a path to some form of durable advantage. Hmm. And I think that's really the model um, that people get a little bit um, confused about. They expect that there's somehow going to be advantage at the beginning, which there typically isn't. But what there needs to be is this period of incredible execution that then can lead to advantage. And most advantage in the world is based around two things, which is scale, and customer captivity. And the scale that we see in the digital world 
tends often to revolve to some degree around network effects, which is a kind of scale. In the old legacy world, it tended to involve more around very large, you know, fixed costs investment. Which is which has been Amazon's play essentially. I mean, they've they've managed to translate their early executional excellence into massive investments in in logistics, in cloud infrastructure. They're, they've been betting on themselves, essentially. Yes, exactly. I mean, really, their incredible execution in the first few years allowed them to survive some near-death moments. And now they've got to a point where they have incredible scale. Yeah. Um, again, I think we, it's impossible to um, you know, overestimate how well Bezos done, because he really has been brilliant. But at the same time, we probably do under, overestimate their competitive advantage in many ways because, you know, as a retailer, they're incredible, um, but they're still 25% the size of Walmart. In, a, in very hyper-competitive markets. In hyper-competitive markets. Now, it's, it's not true in books. In books, you know, they really are very powerful. But, you know, if you went on to Amazon tomorrow and toothpaste was twice as expensive as it costs in Walmart, uh, most of us would switch and buy it from, we'd walk down to Walmart or we'd buy it online at Walmart or whatever. It's not like they're in such this strong competitive position that whatever price they said toothpaste <laughs> was, we would pay it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's why we tend to, arrest, and it's the same on the cloud, like they have an incredible cloud service in AWS, but Google's no slouch either and neither is Microsoft. And Amazon has cut prices more than 60 times uh, in the last few years on AWS. And it's not because they're incredibly generous, it's because it's an incredibly competitive business. So they're an amazing company, no question. Mm. But in most of the markets they operate, they're in an incredibly competitive battle with multiple behemoths. When, they, when people sort of analyze startups and they try and tell big companies they have to behave more like startups, they often focus on a lot of the wrong things, you know, the environment and millennials and tech people. But but when you really get to the heart of what drives um, execution excellence at Amazon, a lot of it's around their approach to decision making. Uh, and I, yes. I was really, did you, did you, you probably saw um, um, Jeff Bezos' most recent let, shareholder letter, yeah. where he talks about high velocity decision making. Uh, yeah. I mean, do you think this is sort of a new model of 21st century um, operating mentality, essentially? which even though you're very big, you can still remain very agile. Yeah, I mean, they're just such an exceptional company. I think that uh, for sure, uh, companies need to be more agile and do a lot of things that Bezos outlines in that letter, a lot of things that Reed Hastings has talked about, et cetera. In the end, companies develop their own culture uh, and they need their own approach to these things. You know, his particular things about how there's a memo and everyone spends the first five minutes reading and stuff. You know, I personally like, I'm not sure it would work at every single company. No. Um, but the broad strokes of how, uh, you know, someone's got to make a decision, someone's got to take responsibility, how you've got to get on with it, um, I think are very instructive uh, for a lot of places. I, I like his, his sort of strategy of disagree and commit. You know, right. like, like why waste time trying to convince him of a decision when, um, you'd be better off being less wrong with time than trying to waste all this time being right. Yeah, it's kind of this sort of Bayesian, you know, theory of of, of of gathering information to adjust your hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not that dissimilar to um, to sort of some of the Facebook uh, slogans, you know, sort of break things and move quickly and all those kind of things. I think it's they're all similar ways of doing the same thing, which is let's just get on with it, let's ship code, 
let's see what happens, let's fix it quickly, and so forth and so on. I think that you know, these things um, are partly about how you execute them, and they're also easier, perhaps, when you're you know, Facebook um, than when you're uh, Bank of America, right. uh, or when you're a big uh, healthcare provider. Uh, you, you know, you, your ability to break things and make mistakes and so forth <laughs> might be a bit different. But, uh, but even Facebook have adjusted that now. It's, it's like, let's move fast with stable infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you get bigger, the limits to what you can do, again, become more dramatic. You know, when Facebook, if Facebook breaks something and exposes a whole bunch of private information to people, it's kind of a big deal. So they've got a, the, even, even them, you know, there, there are certain limits that come up uh, with size. Big companies who are trying to get their minds around how they can not only coexist but compete with the Frightful Five or, or, or these other organizations, um, I guess they have two choices. One, they can try and buy their way in by gobbling up startups. And mm -hmm. you know, we've seen Walmart do that with Jet yep. in, in sort of the hope that they infect the mother, the mother organism with the kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Or they can try to refactor from within. Um, you know, aside from just coming in and doing a, a 3G capital and, 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 and cutting a bunch of costs, I mean, well, what do you think that big companies can do, you know, to try and transform themselves to, to survive in this new era? I think that, again, not to be too simplistic, but in the end, you know, firms need to figure out what their source of competitive advantage is and find a way to leverage that. Right. So in the end, you know, if you look at it, again, blinding glimpse of the obvious, but if you look at a company like Walmart, what they have is enormous scale. And they still have a scale advantage versus Amazon in many respects. In everything from procurement to distribution to... Exactly. They've yeah. got all these warehouses and all these kind of things. So what they need to do is figure out a way uh, to turn that into an advantage rather than a disadvantage. Hmm. Uh, and I think in the past it might have been more of a disadvantage because they were hamstrung by a whole bunch of things around their stores. And I think the most important thing about the JET acquisition, as well as getting you know, an incredibly uh, talented entrepreneur to run it and all those kind of things, is that there's someone with a separate uh, approach to the business who will probably be a little less hamstrung by the core Walmart business. And so that might allow them to uh, compete better. But it really comes down to companies figuring out how to leverage their existing competitive advantage. I think that when you're a, you know, a traditional, normal retailer, uh, a department store or something, the challenge is, you know, an order of magnitude uh, more <laughs> difficult. Right, um, be because you don't have those network effects behind you. Yeah, and also, it may well be that. The pivot required, if you like, you know, in a, in a Silicon Valley sense, is just so dramatic because the underlying value proposition of what you offer uh, just may not be attractive anymore. You know, there may be a group of people for whom going to the department store is like sticking a fork in their eye, um, <laughs> and all the underlying brands they get from the department store they can buy from Amazon or something right. else. And so, you know, how do you transform that? You know, you somehow have to make the experience more fun and I don't know, you have clowns walking around the store. You probably need to have more own brand stuff so it can't be compared on price to Amazon, all these kind of things. But none of that sounds super compelling. No. It all sounds like uh, sort of fighting gravity. 
It sounds like the airlines trying to, try, try to sell the idea that experiences are good when you fly. Right, and the, good, and, you know, and the airlines have now been smart enough, at least in the US, to almost give up on that. They pay lip service to it, but really what they're focused on is not competing on price. Uh, they've given up trying to make the experience uh, <laughs> anything other than painful. Um, but they're being more disciplined about supply, yeah. uh, prices going up, and it's amazing. You know, the airlines, the swing in profit in airlines in several years is $50 billion from, you know, whatever it was, a 20 or $30 billion loss as a group a few years ago to a 20 or $30 billion profit. Uh, and that's really about discipline. When we look at the digital competitive space and, and we think about the players in it, in, in the West we often just imagine we're in a vacuum and we sort of forget that um, that the East has its own sort of conglomerates. Uh, yes. They call them BAT, mm-hmm. you know, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting to kind of compare and contrast because unlike the Frightful Five, they are their reach into Chinese daily life is actually far more um, agrarious. You know, like yes. I, I mean, uh, everything from logistics to payments. I mean, those things just didn't exist in China before, and now they're essentially being played out on that platform. Yes, I mean, you know, when you hear numbers from some of those players, you almost wonder whether someone's like got a couple of zeros wrong. Right. It's I mean, uh, like Singles Day. I mean, I think yeah. Alibaba did what twenty billion last year, almost twenty billion. Yeah, and as you see, there's a whole bunch of blog posts that literally cast you know huge doubt on whether this is even feasible whether it's even whether the math even adds up <laughs> um, you, they have all of those things that you describe and then they have the additional element which is they have some degree of regulatory protection right and again it's unclear exactly what that degree is um, but it's pretty clear that you do need to have some degree of government cooperation in order to compete in certain of those markets so yeah again you know those players are probably even more powerful in China than the US players are here. But again, they are all competing with each other on just about everything. And they may eventually compete with the Frightful Five. Uh, They may eventually compete with the Frightful Five. Uh, Yeah, I mean, they do in some cases. I'm not sure, um, you know, how much they will compete with them in the US, um, but in other parts of the world, for sure. Well, Jeremy, it's great seeing you again. Uh, It's been wonderful having you on the show. Um, Thanks very much. Yeah, enjoyed it. Nice to talk to you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.